Matthew chapter 1. We'll continue where we left off last week with this, the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, And what I want to do is not necessarily go through uh, verse by verse as we did last as we didn't do last week in Matthew 1, not to go verse by verse in this chapter, but just to draw out some main points that we can contemplate uh, in this Christmas season uh, with the goal that we are keeping Jesus at the center so that our celebration of Christmas is a celebration of Him. Our celebration would be a celebration of God's work through Him in sending His Son when the time was right, in order to live and die and be raised again for us, in order to save us from our sins. That's what we want to make Christmas about, the good news. It's as basic as John 3.16, which probably every person in this room has memorized. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you were to summarize the Christmas message, that would be it, right? And it's as simple as that. God giving His Son, just as He promised to do uh, through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a, a child is born, a son is given, and here He is to save us from our sins. So we're analyzing chapter 1 somewhat. We talked a little bit about the genealogy last week and some things out of there. And now I want to just begin reading this morning in verse 18, and we'll just read 18 through the end of the chapter. We'll pray. We'll dive in with a few more points. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we approach Matthew chapter 1, specifically, and just, Father, as we ponder the gospel message of Christmas time, we just plead with you for your Spirit's help and guidance, his gifting of me and empowerment, his ability to, his uh, giving us the ability to understand, comprehend, and in a special way, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would rejoice in Jesus through the word, that we'd rejoice in him through this time. So, Father, we come to you for this because we depend upon you for this. And we pray it in his name. Amen. 
Remember what we observed last week as we talked about the genealogy and about this first chapter that we read in its entirety. And we realized that the whole Christmas narrative and the gospel of Matthew is set in the context of history. It's history. It's filled with history. First, in that gene- genealogical record, that is the uh, descendancy of Jesus we didn't read last week, but is at the beginning of chapter 1. It's the history of Jesus' family. It is the history of the people of Israel, and it clues us in on something very important. You can't have Jesus uh, of the New Testament and not the Old Testament as well, because they come hand in hand. They're connected. He is, of course, showing how this Jesus, who was born of Mary, was descended from Abraham and David, because God had promised to send the Messiah through Abraham, and then further clarified, through the line of David. And he would be the God's forever king, this son of David. And he's demonstrating this Jesus is qualified for this. But then we talked about the fact that that genealogy was put together in such a way that Matthew drew specific, uh, real detail to the fact that Israel was a mess. That they were sinful, that they were broken, that they were rebellious. You have it all in there. I mean, from the top to the bottom, all of them. So much so, he mentions that deportation of Babylon in there. They were so bad, he had to kick them out of the land he promised to them. Even their kings were corrupted. Even their great king David was corrupted. And that Jesus came through the line of Bathsheba. And as Matthew points out to us, the wife of Uriah, one of David's mighty men. Filled with sinfulness and brokenness. You remember we said this. In part that is to draw attention to the righteousness of Jesus. Here is the only human being in history who wasn't born sinful and broken. Here is the only human being in history who has no need of a savior. Everyone else including God's best men, so to speak, like David. They need a Savior, but not Jesus. He's qualified to be their King. He's qualified to be their Messiah. And He's qualified to be their Savior as the perfect, perfect, righteous Jesus. And that invites you and me, friends, the unfaithful. We just sang it. Come all ye unfaithful. Broken, messed up, sinful to Jesus, who is able and willing to save you from your sins. That's the mission revealed in his name, is it not? She will bear a son, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the idea. We go to Jesus in all our brokenness. Let me let you in on a little secret that I don't think is talked enough about in Christianity. We often talk about, uh, we tell unbelievers that Jesus is the Savior from their sins. So if they're unbelieving and they're living in the world and they need salvation, we 
promote this to them as we should. He is your Savior. Come, repent, believe in Him. But it's almost as like we talk about this as uh, our need of a Savior is always was past tense, right? And then now that we're Christians, we no longer really need a Savior from our sins and we kind of sometimes can be guilty of acting like we don't need a Savior from our sins. Like we've all of a sudden, all, we got it all together now. But understand, friends, this is a very present tense need that you and I have to be rescued from our sinfulness. And the Bible is very good at drawing out the fact that your sin nature remains with you even when you get that new heart in the new nature. That God is good at showing His people how much they still need this day the good news. The joy bringing news that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus so that you can turn to Him today and be looking to Him today for rescue from your sin and your brokenness. Oftentimes people feel they need to run away from Jesus when they're Christians if they're falling into sin, but that's exactly the opposite of what he would want. That's why he's right now very currently a faithful high priest there and willing and able for you to turn to him, to find in him forgiveness for the day, grace for the day, empowerment for the day. And When you think about that broken history of Israel, and as we just talked about that genealogy last week, a little bit this morning. Do you see in yourself a history of sinful brokenness? It's easy to see it in Israel. If you read your Old Testament, it isn't hard to find. You see it from the very beginning of their formation. What a mess of a people. We read it and say, man, they were a mess. But have you, ever, have you come to the conclusion that you're a mess that you're a sinner. Do you see your own sinfulness that would lead you to sense your own need of a Savior? For some, this seems to come a little easier than others. There are really two classes of youth in the world. If you've worked with youth, you know this. You can probably kind of lump them into two groups, generally speaking. You've got the rebels. And these are the kids you're looking at and you're thinking, can't you just get your act together? Why can't you just do what's right? Some of you parents, you're chuckling because and, and you, you, you had these kind of kids in your home and you're like, can't you just do what's right just once, surprise us all. These are the rebels. For those, when the Spirit works in their heart, it's very easy for them to look back usually and see the broken sinfulness. And they say, yeah, I need a Savior. It's like my brother told me, if Jesus doesn't save us from our sins, our goose is cooked. But there's another group of youth that I worry about sometimes. And these are the good ones. They just always seem to do what's right. For some, that carries right on into their adult life. And they, 
attending church and they're going to church as adults and they, they think about, man, it's such good news that Jesus saves sinners like those people over there. But I never really went astray. I mean, there were a couple times, you know, I did a thing here or there. But in the main, I was pretty good. I honestly, as a pastor, worry more about the second group than the first, sometimes. It's harder for them to see their sins because they don't have that track record of brokenness. But friends, for both, whether you're the good kid or the not-so-good kid, both take that working of the Holy Spirit to drive the law right into their hearts and show them. Jesus put it this way. He said, when the Spirit comes, He's going to convince the world of its sinfulness. There's a convincing, we call it conviction to the core. It'll convince them they need a Savior. This is what He does. This is what we need. So it's a question we need to ask ourselves Do I sense my need of a Savior from sin? And maybe it's best that we don't just then think about individual sins we've committed. Maybe it'd be better if we're asking that question that we just think about our hearts and our dispositions generally. Our attitude towards God and other people. Maybe it's not always what we, we didn't do that was wrong, but maybe we didn't do what we should have done. We didn't do what was right. Maybe we need to approach this differently and pray that as we analyze ourselves, we're, as we're asking God this question, have I ever really sensed that I need to be forgiven and saved? Have I ever experienced what the Lord Jesus talked about as the conviction of sin? And we go to him and we ask this and we ponder these things so that we are sure that our faith is true and genuine and real. See, the gospel of Matthew is for both, right? You have in this one gospel both classes of people. You had the outright sinners, the tax collectors and the, uh, the prostitutes and the just the, the, the ones that were just in open rebellion against God. But you also had the Pharisees who thought they were okay with God because what they, uh, what they did was right. This is a gospel for sinners, friends. It's only good news for those who are sinners. And the good news is that for those who know they are sinners, that God has provided a Savior at Christmas, and His name is Jesus And if you come to him in repentant faith, he will save you from your sins. It doesn't matter what group you were in. (laughs) And the Bible brings us all into one group. Sinner. Not degrees of sinners or stages of sinners. You know, take the time this week to review Romans chapter 3 and see how Paul does this. Doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile. Doesn't matter, outright blatant sinner or Pharisee like he was. He brings it all, he brings every human being under one group of people, one heading, and that is we are all under sin and we all need a Savior. And the gospel is that God has provided his Son as our Savior, the Lord Jesus. This is a book of history. 
This is a book of history, the history of Jesus, a history of brokenness, and the historical sending of God's Son for our sins. Now, a few more things I want to draw out from this chapter. In keeping with the thought that this is historical in nature, the first one is this. These Christmas scenes should be read as historical narrative. I felt led to emphasize this this week. This is important. These Christmas scenes and all of the Bible should be read as historical narrative. That is, we approach it with the understanding that everything we read is absolutely true and it happened. God intends for you to always approach His Word with that disposition. That we read them with a sense of certainty about these things, even when we don't understand them, or when what we're reading seems fantastical or unbelievable. Or what we're reading lacks modern scientific evidence, or archaeological evidence or stands against the reason or wisdom of the age. Regardless of all of that, we are to approach it with certainty. This happened because God said it happened in the way that God said that it happened. That comes into play already in Matthew's gospel because you read some pretty unbelievable things here, right? Like as an example, verse 18 The birth of Jesus Christ took this place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. To which the world would respond, really? To which I'm sure many of the acquaintances of Jesus' family in that very small, really, everybody knows everybody place of Galilee was like, really? Is that how this happened? I'm sure they were very skeptical. Even get indications with Jesus' debates with some of the religious leaders that they are, you know, taking jabs at him about this. One who was born out of immorality. But friends, Matthew says it very clearly, doesn't he? The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's intending for you to read this as historical narrative. You know, in the late 19th and early 20th century, biblical skeptics and biblical scholars of what we would just call liberal scholars of the Bible launched an all-out doubt-producing attack on the truthfulness of Scripture. This is when the real debate started heating up about the inerrancy of Scripture. And do you know what one of the hot-button topics in these debates was? It was about the virgin birth of Jesus, or the virgin conception. They say, look, clearly that can't happen. And so this was a later addition into Matthew's Gospel produced by disciples who want to make the story more than it is and make more of Jesus than we should make of him, and so they insert this in here. But is that the way Matthew wants us to read it? 
if he says that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way and is very detailed and is very clear and goes out of his way to be clear that the virgin conceived and bore a son. We live in an age of doubt. I spent the most unedifying 45 minutes imaginable this morning listening to a podcast of a very well-known online celebrity presence discuss his deconversion story. Have you heard any of these? This deconversion, this deconstruction movement, where these are people that were prominent evangelical Christians and had been for years and years. Some of them, like this man, had served on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ was a small group leader at his church, had been asked to preach messages. And he traces his journey of doubt and doubt that led to unbelief. I thought, how dangerous this is. He actually referred to his journey of doubt as a, as a sweater. And he began, there was a little piece off it, you know, and you start pulling it and it just starts unraveling and you pull a little bit more and you pull a little bit more and you pull a little bit more until you have nothing left. That was his concept of this. And it all started, it all started and began when he began entertaining doubts about the truthfulness of scriptures, specifically starting right in Genesis 1. And he begins doubting this. And then it moves on throughout the Old Testament, the history of Israel and the miraculous things God did through them. And then the lack of evidence in archaeology, suppose it's so, that this, none of this happened. And it grows into even into the New Testament. And he, he said, well, you know, I, I eventually came to the point, well, you, you could have Jesus. You can get rid of everything else. You still have Jesus. But what we've learned from Matthew 1 is you can't do that, can you? Because apostles make it clear, all of this is rooted in the history of Israel. All of this is rooted in what God has said before and the promises God made before. This is the history of Jesus and you can't have both. And it eventually has gotten to the point where he said, you know, I don't even believe Jesus rose from the dead. But friends, that's not an uncommon testimony. If you just searched it online, you find it everywhere. And it begins with doubt, constant doubt of what God has said. There is a general disposition in the air, so to speak, in the age in which we live, in which people approach it with doubt. And now even Christians are being given permission to doubt, like that's okay. Friends, I want to explain very clearly. And I don't want to discourage anybody who battles the sin of doubt, because there are people in this room, I'm sure they do. But we need to acknowledge doubt for what it is. It is a sin. It is dangerous. And friends, the source of all doubt of Scripture comes is the devil himself. The Bible's very clear on this. Do you know what the very first question in the Bible is and who it comes from? It comes from the devil in Genesis chapter 3 right before the fall of the human race into sin. And the question goes like this. He comes, uh, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? 
Did God actually say? How subtle. How crafty. Get people asking the question. Get them thinking about it. Get them questioning what God has said. Not coming to God with a posture of, speak to us from your word. Everything you say, we will believe. And by your spirit, we will commit to do. And where I don't understand, I will turn it back over to you, knowing one day I will, knowing that you do understand, you see. That's the posture by which we approach Scripture. There was an old saying. How did it go? The Scripture says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And we live in a day and age where that's just unsatisfying and sounds anti-intellectual. Friends, I think that sounds robustly Christian. This is how the true people of God have always approached His Word, both in Old and New Testament. These are the very words of God, and they are true. We believe them. And where others, let's say scientists, find evidence as they analyze the data that seems to contradict Scripture, I would say you're misanalyzing the data. Because the Bible is what we know to be true in an errand. Jesus said it, did he not? When he prayed for his people in John 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This is the source of truth that we have. When you have doubts creep into your minds... Recognize them for what they are. They're sin that is from the devil and it's dangerous. You keep pulling on that thread of doubt, entertaining it like any other sin. Like any other sin, you keep entertaining it, you keep feeding it, you keep fostering it. Everything's going to unravel for you, of course. That's not the leading of the Holy Spirit to you. That's the leading of the devil. Doubt comes from the devil. Friends, if you are a person that uniquely struggles with doubt, and we all do at times if we're honest, you'll be reading the Bible and you'll come across something and you're thinking, did that really happen? Could this really be? Have you ever had that doubt? I've had those thoughts. People have them, but immediately, this is so dangerous and becoming so prevalent in our culture. I've got to warn you, it's dangerous Like I would warn you about any other sin. Like I'd warn myself about any other sin. This is so dangerous. We've got to battle it. We've got to put it to death. There is a certainty God wants us to have about all of these accounts. Look at Luke chapter 1. Look at how Luke begins his gospel as he's writing to this man specifically, Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, listen to this. Inasmuch, now, now this man Theophilus had already heard about Jesus, apparently. He had been taught some things 
I've been taught the gospel and some of the history and the things going on, who Jesus was. Now listen to this. So this is discipleship happening right here. And Luke writes to him and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I've done the research, he says. I've compiled the data, the narratives. I've talked with eyewitnesses. I want you to have certainty about these things. Not to be doubting or wavering or questioning. I want you to have certainty that what you're reading here is absolute truth from God. That Jesus is exactly who the apostles is saying he is. He did what they're saying he did. He is who he's said he was. I want you to have certainty about these things that I'm writing. It is interesting then, and Graham mentioned it earlier in our liturgy here, about Zachariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. Remember the condition they were in? They were very old, and she had been barren their whole life, or their whole married life, so they weren't able to have children. And uh, so he goes in as the priest, and Uh, the angel uh, appears to him. And he says, I've come from God. And here's a message to you from God. You're going to have a child, the forerunner of Christ. And you remember his response? He doubted. And the angel said to him, I have come from God. And because you doubted, you're going to be unable to speak until that child is born. Months went on. Can you imagine that? Had a lot of time to think about his doubting of God. I bet he didn't deal with doubt much after that at God's word. It's almost like Luke is beginning it saying, be certain of this, Theophilus, and don't doubt. Because doubting comes from the devil. And doubting is dangerous. I felt the need to elaborate on that this week. There may be people in this room struggling with that. Some of our youth, I'm sure all of them come to places where they're starting to question these things. We need to speak to them as though these things are absolutely true. Not launch on them in an attack, but speak about the certainty of these things. Teach them about the certainty of these things. Because doubt is dangerous and doubt is from the devil. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of things here and I'm going to go on to another point here. The Christmas narrative is a narrative of humanity. It's a narrative of history and it's a narrative of humanity. I love this and I think this will be edifying if you stay with me. Okay, this is edifying for us and we're supposed to see this. The birth of Christ and the life of Christ took place in the context of human history. Even people that deny 
who Jesus was, very few have attempted to deny the historical human Jesus or the historical time period of the first century in uh, Israel and with the Romans and those things. This, was the, this is a, a really a fact of history that very few have tried to deny. God was made flesh, became a real man, with a real name given to him, Jesus, in a real place, Israel, among real people, Jews and Romans and some others. A historical setting of humanity in which, of course, wherever humanity is found, there are people, obviously, and with people there are always problems. All of the issues of our times and our lives existed then, and Jesus experienced them all. There was, as we have, political issues and social issues and religious issues, faulty Jewish leadership. Jesus, of course, was born into a very real fallen human family with fallen human parents and siblings with every ounce of sinful humanness any of the rest of us have. There's a real human grittiness to this whole story. Jesus arriving at a point in historical time with historical conditions and realities, a historical place among real historical people. The Christmas story and the gospel itself is set in a historical context of humanity in a fallen world. You know, we watch the news, we read the news, and we say, this world is such a mess. Understand, friends, it wasn't any cleaner then. It wasn't any more organized. It was a mess that Jesus was born into. We get that idea all through the Gospel of Matthew, and especially among God's people. Just a mass time of confusion and sin and division. It was a mess. He was born into subpar and disadvantaged conditions. We learn from the Scriptures that Joseph and Mary were poor. They were poor people. Jesus didn't, wasn't born into an affluent family where he had lots of stuff and lots of influence through his parents. These were not privileged people. He was born into these conditions and remained in them his whole life as a human being. Don't forget that big mystery of Christmas. The Son of God becomes a human being becomes a real man and lives life in a real world and experiences all of it. You know, what you learn in these narratives, especially as you go on in chapter 2 and Herod uh, uh, going after Jesus and such, you learn that Jesus was sovereignly protected by God, but he wasn't sheltered. Jesus didn't live a sheltered life, and there's a big difference between protected life and a sheltered one. He encountered it all, friends. He was protected through this world, but not from it. Christmas is a demonstration of God's gracious willingness in and through His Son to come and suffer with His people and to truly identify with His his people by becoming a human being. 
to come in the fullness of humanity, to live life as a human, a real, live human being. In that way, uh, Isaiah's prophecy in verse 23 is fulfilled. She bore a son. His name is Emmanuel, which is God, catch this, with us. God with us here. God with us in our humanity. God with us in our suffering. And Aaron drew this out to me the other day. It begins with that good news of Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what the Gospel of Matthew ends with? The risen Christ saying, Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. In other words, I'm still with you. Always, the underlying Greek, all the days. Every single one of them, all the way until he returns again. God with us in Jesus, with us in our sorrows as a man who is acquainted with grief and sorrow himself. He knows what it's like to live life as a human being in a fallen world. And that means we can look to him now for help. You see... Jesus was an historical figure, but he is not just a figure of history, was he? He is a very present reality to us now. Very real, every bit as much alive now as the man Jesus as he ever was, interceding for us, with us in our life in this fallen world. He is God with us, and we can look to Him. Consider Hebrews 2, 17 to 18. I have a slide for this. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you realize that's you? When you're tempted and tried, He's able to help you. As a man who's gone through it himself. Living life in a fallen and corrupt world. Experiencing trials and temptations. Experiencing sorrow and pain and loss and heartache. Even experiencing death. These are not merely theoretical concepts to Jesus. Understand that. He has experienced them in their fullness for us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, that is, co-suffer with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And that's great news, right? Without sin. Because you and I experience the fallenness of this world, and oftentimes as fallen people, we fall with it. Oftentimes, our responses to trials and temptations is less than stellar, and we fail, and we sin, but not Jesus. This is why He's able to be our Savior, even right now, from our sins and through our trials, because He was perfect. He is our great high priest. He is the right hand of God interceding for us. He's exactly the one we needed and the one we still need. Let us then, the author says, with confidence now, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in a time of need? Then we go to Jesus. He's able to help you. He wants to help you. 
He knows how you feel. He has the ability to help you. Let's let the fact this Christmas that the Son of God stepped into human history as a human and encountered all the mess of this world for us, let that be a source of encouragement, shall we? Let's look to Him now. Let's look to Him in this upcoming year as we face the various trials and temptations that we don't even know are coming. We don't even know they're coming, but they're, they are. They're on their way. A fresh year full of trials for us and full of opportunities to experience the help and the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.